Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about art. We're talking about working with an artist. We're talking about the nuances of hiring and communicating with, the money side of things. We're talking about everything that goes into working effectively with an artist. And we're talking to Adrienne Ezell. She's done art for Leaders of Euphoria, Metal Dawn, Secrets of the Lost Station, Rambo, Come Award. Just the list goes on and on of the games that she has done. Beautiful and amazing art for. Adrienne, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you're a pro artist. How long have you been doing this? Um, I have been getting paid to do art for the last 15 years. 15 years. That is a ton of experience you're bringing to the table. And how many of that have you been working at, like actually just in board games? In board games, about, uh, I think, four now, actually. Cool. Gen Con will be four years. <laughs> Excellent. And you know, I just read the list of some of the games that you've worked on. I mean, those are some pretty well-known games. You're not doing these random you know, Game Crafter games, and there's nothing wrong with Game Crafter games, but you're, not, you're working on big, like, publisher, uh, publisher-driven games. And so I'm excited to kind of get your, uh, your ideas, your feedback, the, the how-to on this stuff, because I'm not an artist, right? I don't understand that side of things. And I feel like there's a whole lot of people listening to this that don't understand it either. There's a lot of nuance that they're just kind of ignorant about. And so I'm excited to kind of learn the best way to navigate the process of hiring and communicating with and paying. We're going to talk about paying artists in a little bit. Uh, but before we get into that, give me your bio. Kind of who are you? How did you get into uh, doing games and, and game design art and just anything else you feel is relevant? All right. Well, I have been, um, <clears throat> I've been a gamer pretty much all my life. Started with my parents back basically since I could read and uh, just I think my first hobby game like we know them now was the Buffy (laughs) uh, Buffy board game and this is like you know the 2000s this is not anything probably that anybody still has on their shelf but um, it kind of got me into board games now as we know them and then I got into a lot of the story driven heavier stuff playing for three hours Um, you know the (laughs) Gosh, those those that was a long time ago. And it's funny now because I don't play games like that anymore. Uh, but I've been doing graphic design and art direction for a long time in the gaming market. But that's casino gaming. Uh, so I've been working for like your Caesars Entertainment and MGM and and all the the big names you see in Vegas kind of stuff. Uh, doing advertising, marketing, and graphic design because it kind of all goes together when you uh, when you get to that, I guess kind of kind of workflow. Uh, so I turned that into board game stuff when I decided I wanted to design games. And I was like, well, you know, it takes me less time to actually crank out a prototype on the computer than it does to Sharpie on cards to like to make a prototype. So once I started doing it for myself, people saw what I was doing. Um, and then I started doing it for other people. And I was like, well, heck, yeah, you know, I can put my hobby and my you know, career together and then have something that I actually want to get up and do every day. Uh, but it's actually just been this year that I've gone out on my own to do art full time. Um, I've actually quit my nine to five and I'm I'm now doing art and board game design full time. And it is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but has it been a good experience so far? Absolutely. You know, I'm loving it. I I like the diversity of projects I get to work on. One of the hardest things is scheduling, actually, like, and that's not to say I'm, oh, I'm super busy. But it's that, you know, uh, when larger publishers, 
or more established publishers get a hold of you to do art, you know, it's, oh, well, you know, this needs to be done by May, but we may not have you, we may not have all of our, you know, playtesting and changes done until XYZ time. And, you know, that may be two weeks before they need it finished. Yeah. Or it may be, you know, three months from now is when they're actually asking about a project um, to be done. And so you kind of have to like pencil that in and yeah, I definitely want it. And sometimes those projects happen and sometimes they don't, sometimes they get bumped. Um, so it's, that's actually been the hardest part is knowing how much to say yes to and when to say no, because I'm, I'm one of those that will work till four in the morning and not sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not really good for me, it turns (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah, it's got some long-term side effects to it. Absolutely. And then when you're doing it night after night after night, especially prepping for Kickstarters, man, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And how have you also have you also run into something that this is something that I've heard a lot of like entrepreneurs and people that are freelancers that say, you know, that when they go off on their own, they run into scheduling because now they're their own boss. And so it's up to you to kind of be the supervisor. It's up to you to be the manager. Have you kind of struggled with that scheduling aspect as well? Uh, no, that I'm actually doing pretty well at because I tell me doing... how <laughs> like, okay, well, explain so... to, to people how that works. <laughs> well, since I did, since I've been doing board game art for the last four years on top of my um board game design and my nine to five job, I had to schedule or be very careful with my scheduling to make sure I could actually get a few hours of sleep before I'd have to go back into the normal nine to five. So I've been so used to fitting a full eight hours of work into after dinner (laughs) until I sleep that it kind of came naturally to be able to schedule that during the day. And I got to say, that's one of the biggest freedoms to it. I actually now get a little bit miffed when I'm still working on something at seven or eight o'clock at night because I was like, man, I should be done. Um, but it's so far, it's really the, the long-term planning, especially with conventions. Um, my first game is coming out this year. My first game design is coming out this year. And so I'm hitting like all of the conventions and I'm, I'm honestly very stressed and worried about, uh, basically June or May through July through August mm-hmm. through Gen Con, yep. um, about having time to make enough money to pay bills. Cause now that's the only place the money's coming from. So <laughs> Yeah, definitely. These are things that uh, you know, more people need to be aware of because so many people have the idea that they, they just want to do this full time, right? They want to work on games or be in the game uh, industry full time. It's like, well, there's more to it than you think. It's not all just hanging out and playing games all day. Like there's so much business to it. And I think that's one of the main things that, that we're going to talk about with this episode is there's a lot of business to this stuff. And so before we get into the business side, let's talk about just the importance of art. Now you're an artist, obviously you're a little biased here, but give me like just your opinion, your ideas on why art is so just pivotally important for a board game. I think it really sets them apart. I mean, it's, there's a lot of worker placement games and there's a lot of people that will argue that, you know, euros and things that get into that worker placement aspect don't necessarily have a lot of theme. So the way you're telling those games apart is the art and art goes even farther because it's letting players be immersed in the setting. It's letting them enjoy that downtime, that hobby aspect of it. You know, you're, you're sitting down to play with, for fun and it creates an experience. So it's much, it's a much nicer experience if you're constantly being um, immersed through the art, through the cards, through little touches on the rule book, through, you know, there's always something to, to look at. And, and then a completely other aspect to it is it really helps present the information in a way that's going to be understandable to the most people. That's what good graphic design is going to do above and beyond, you know, fantastic illustrations is that 
it should be able to explain your game at a glance to somebody if they've just had a cursory overview of the rules. So when they sit down, they know where the icons are they're looking for. They know where they put something on the board or how this interacts with that, where it fits in because of, you know, a, a box with an outline around it that's the exact same shape as the thing they're holding and that sort of thing. So it's it really gives us those visual cues to be able to play the game, play the game faster and then also uh, just aesthetically be immersed in the game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, art is just so incredibly important. Like you said, it separates games. It sets them apart. It's one of those things that if you don't spend money on it, people can tell, right? And they're, they're kind of put off by it a lot of times. If you think about the best games of all time, the highest greatest games in the world, they're all pretty much beautiful. Like, they all look good. There's a handful in there that are just kind of bland, and they're just kind of brown the game, whatever. But for the most part, they look really, really good. The graphic design is done well. The art is done well. That's just kind of across the board. And so this is one of those things. Like, if you if you go in halfway, then it's going to really hurt your game in the long run. Even if you have a great game, if it doesn't look good, people typically aren't going to be uh, more uh, – they're not going to want to play it as much as a beautiful game. Where on the flip side, if you have a really terrible game with great art, more, more people are going to play it. And so it's kind of funny how, the, how that works. Your art kind of brings people in, and then the game keeps them there, so to speak. And so art is just, oh, man, it's, it's one of those things that if you don't do it right, then you're, you're really missing out on a large, large amount of money, both in sales and just in uh, recognizi- recognizability. It's probably not a word. But being re- able to be recognized for your games and for, uh, for what it is. And so let's kind of get into the, the more business side of things. Before the show, we were talking about, like, the importance of different things. And you mentioned planning as being, like, the key thing, the utmost important thing. So let's talk about planning. Like before you start hiring an artist, walk me through what, what a person, a publisher, someone who's going to do a Kickstarter, what they need to be doing and thinking about before they even start trying to reach out to artists. Okay, so I'm going to break this down into two sections. Then we're going to, I'll talk about pre-crowdfunding. So the people going for your Kickstarters and your um, Indiegogo. I was going to say, what's the other one? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've only ever done campaigns for Kickstarter because I haven't had any, any clients that want to go the other way yet. Um, and then also break it down just, just for publishers. So for Kickstarter publishers, one of the most important things is to decide what you need for your campaign. Now, you've been playtesting. You've got, you know, placed art and stuff. And then, of course, I'm going to caveat this and go ahead and interject that if you've used just Google image search and have art that you do not own in your prototype. Don't take pictures of that. You know, just be respectful to the the people that, that created that. So well, it's also copyright infringement, right? If you're trying to make money absolutely. off somebody else's stuff, that's, that's a copyright. Yeah, that's illegal, absolutely. Right? Well, it is, but it's not, you're not selling it. You're not selling it with that art on it. So it's a gray area, but just as somebody that makes art and has, you know, wind up, it's always kind of flattering, but then, hey, that's not cool. When you find something you've done, saved to somebody else's website or, you know, available somewhere, um, because that's actually happened to me. And I just sent a very nice email that was like, hey, you know, I created this, and actually this belongs to the person I created it for, not even to me, so can you take it down? And they did, you know, which was nice. But um, But real quick, I'm going to back up just for a second. You said, all right, so if I'm doing a Kickstarter and I've used Google Images and, you know, that's on my prototype, and I take pictures of it, that's technically legal. Like if I'm, I'm not selling that actual art, if I'm just taking pictures of the prototype and I've got a nice little asterisk that says, you know, art is going to change or whatever. That's not illegal. It's just like super frowned upon. Yeah, super frowned upon. Gotcha. And I'm, I'm certainly not a lawyer. You know, that's that's one of those you would definitely want to get something checked out. So I won't I won't give legal advice. I'll just give art advice. Right. However, um, you want to present in your Kickstarter, you want to present 
the best version of your game that you can possibly present. And that's going to mean getting some placeholder art created. Um, and that doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg. It doesn't have to be very expensive. So you need to decide what's the minimum art you need to have to make your game viable on Kickstarter. If you're going to have characters, but you need 54 characters, let's say, just randomly, you need to get at least one done, possibly two, so that you can make sure you've got a gender split, so that you can make sure you're presenting the ex to the expectations of your backers, so that you can show what style you're going with, if you can sign that artist and make sure you're keeping that artist for your final um, publishing that, and especially if that artist is notable and people are going to recognize the name, then that's something you can advertise and you can say, here are even rough sketches by that artist. And maybe here's one finished piece that's, this is the style. This is how we envision all of the characters for this game being. And then you may need a card frame. You may need a, some graphic design. You're going to look for the bare minimum that you can get done to represent your game on Kickstarter so that the backers know that you're serious. Um, and, and that's honestly my biggest recommendation to Kickstarter publishers, to creators, is don't try to finish your entire game art-wise before you have funded because that's coming out of your pocket. And there's obviously we've seen the Kickstarter market do some crazy stuff you know, and that's going to be a really large expense. And if it's if it's not a really large expense, then something went wrong somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, then it probably <laughs> should have been, and you, you screwed that up. Yeah. So for Kickstarter planning, you need to get, like I said, the bare minimum. Um, and to plan for that, you need to decide what that needs to be. And that's going to be very game dependent. Um, if you've got a deck builder, you're going to need a card frame. Period. The end. You're going to need to show what one of the cards you're building your deck with looks like, where the icons are, where they go. Um, so that's something you would pay a graphic designer to do to get that ready for you. Um, your game logo, you've probably already been placing on placing on stuff, hopefully, you know, when you've been playtesting and advertising this. But a really strong game logo and a really strong game image, the Kickstarter thumbnail image. Um, and certainly don't overlook getting a professional to create your Kickstarter campaign images. That's really going to go a long way to making it look professional and using the assets that you do have effectively. Yeah, definitely. Now, what also, what about a, a box? I've seen a lot of people, you you know, they pay up front for the box image. That, that way they can release, release it on Facebook and put it out there. Is that another good thing to have on the front end? You know, I really hear board game media talking about that going both ways. Now, of course, I've talked with board game media about it and not board game um that our, our purchasers, our clients, you know, our customers. Backers. Yeah. So backers, there we go. Um, because it, it's really half a dozen, you know, six and the other. Mm -hmm. Because it's if it's not your final box, and I don't mean like, oh, you changed a word down in the bottom left. But I mean, if you're changing the complete box illustration, it's not, you're, you're building up expectations, or you have to be careful of building up expectations that you're not, going to follow through with because there's going to be some people even if 99 people out of 100 backers let's say just to make seriously simple math 99 backers come up and tell you that gosh your box could look a lot better I don't like it that one backer is absolutely in love with it and they're going to throw a fit that you changed it mm. <laughs> um the, the you know the, the one number 100 instead out of the out of the 100 mm -hmm. so it, it's really it's going to be a, that's one of those that's really hard to answer because honestly, I've heard tirades about it both ways um, because 
veteran Kickstarter backers know that your box isn't real. Mm. They know that you haven't gotten one printed yet. You know, so if you have gotten one printed yet and you have one you're holding in your hand, you ordered it from Game Crafter or you did a wrap on a, you know, an old board game box, you covered it up and did it yourself, then, you know, yeah, take a picture of it with somebody holding it so that they know that that's real and that's not a Photoshopped image. Um, with that said, if you have box art created or if you have an illustration that you know you're using for your box art, it shouldn't cost you very much at all to get somebody to, you know, make that 3D. I was going to say slap that on. It's not <laughs> technically that simple, but <laughs> it's getting there. Photoshop's got, got a lot of excellent tools happening with 3D imaging. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's also a program called BoxShot that I've used in the past for books and, and games and stuff that, uh, you know, it's pretty cheap. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you, you can make 3D images of uh, different products and whatnot, and it's fairly intuitive, fairly simple. Yeah, and I found some good uh, tutorials with that as well that um, I'll maybe see if I can find to to get you links to that are not tutorials, but it'll be uh, like template images that'll have like your top and right side. Mm -hmm. And then of course the front and you're actually just trapping it in clipping masks that way. So you can be like, here's my side, here's my top. And it will go ahead and skew it the right way to, to make it 3d. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's pretty fast and easy. And a, a, a layman could figure that out pretty, pretty well. There's so many, th I mean, just Googling now, like make 3d board game box. Like <laughs> you probably pull up eight tutorials. So yeah, for sure. All right. So tell me more about the planning before we get into hiring. What, what else do I need to be thinking about? All right. So let's go into the publishers part of planning. And this is the, the publisher stuff is going to apply, of course, to your crowdfunders too. Um, so spreadsheets are your friends before you approach an artist for a price, you need to know exactly what you need. And that sounds Simple, that sounds easy, but there's been so, so many times, and I've heard this from other artists as well, that somebody says, well, I need about this many cards. And then it's like, <laughs> Roughly well, speaking, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's, that's actually ex ex extremely common. I'll be like, okay, well, I know my game needs 520 cards, but they're not breaking that down into kinds of cards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's very little chance that you're going to have 520 of the same kind of card. You're going to have character cards. You're going to have point cards. You're going to have, you know, the items, what, whatever different kinds of cards. So you need to go ahead and have basically your entire component list broken out like you would if you were getting your, your uh, printing quotes. So your artist can use those same printing quote request for quotes that you've hopefully already, you know, established so that you know how much this game is going to cost. Um, to give give you an estimate because those card frames are different. Well, that's what I'm going to call a different design. So you need to know how many different designs you need, and then you need to know how many iterations you need. Now, iterations are the number of item cards and the number of character cards. So I charge, and this is, you know, I've, I've checked with some other artists too. Like we charge by the iteration, which is way less money than by the design because the design is my time. And the iteration is basically my data management, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Because I only have to do the art part once, and then, I, then I'm responsible for making that many versions of the card and making sure they're all formatted correctly and, and uh, similarly, and that you know, we, didn't, we didn't skip over anything that we were missing. But so to get an accurate quote, you need to know exactly what you need. And that's going to come down to even uh, your tokens, how many of your tokens, how many you need, you need as the creator, you need to already know how many die cut sheets you're going to need, which means you have to know what size your box is, which means you have to have already been to your printer to, to know how big your box is. And the reason I say that is when you make die lines for your tokens, 
you need to know what size the outside of the punch board needs to be so that it fits inside your box. So there's so much logistically that goes into creating a game, even creating the graphic design for a game that you really need to have all of that already established before you're going to an artist. Now, sometimes that's not feasible. You may be adding minis or you may not be adding minis. So you may not know what size your box is going to be till your Kickstarter is, com is completed. So in that case, that's where we go back to the minimum required art that you need to do your Kickstarter. But for publishers going to the end, you should already know, you know, exactly how big things need to be and, and that sort of stuff. And that's going to allow the artist to get you an accurate quote. Now, with that being said, um, we'll get into communication a little bit later. I think communication is actually more important than planning because being honest, being forthright and sharing your expectations is goes so far, so far with an artist. Because if, if you never say, oh, and I need everything by June 24th, and then you don't tell them what everything is, you know, you may wind up with your first proof by June 24th, right. not being, you know, not having the job completed. Yeah, definitely. And we'll get into communication in a second, but anything else that, uh, that goes along with the planning? Yeah, so you need, okay, the accurate scope for sure. You need to have a plan for extra work in case you need to add things. So that's just kind of a caveat you need to make and you need to budget for. Um, you need to create your stages of completion because there's, it's fine to have a goal like we like what did I say June twenty fourth random random date um, you need everything done by but when you're approaching an artist to do an entire game you need to break that down into okay well I'd like to see all the character cards by this date and I'd like to see all of the item cards by this date and I'd like to have all the die lines done by the final date so that you can break this up into smaller chunks. That's going to be easier for you to proof. It's going to be easier for the artist to meet those deadlines and get the um, deliverables to you because that's one of the main things I hear from first-time creators or just new you know, um, self-publishers is that their artists took forever. They're not going to use them again. They're disappointed with how things turned out uh, time-wise, that oh, this, this was late and that was late and it was the artist's fault. And I think a lot of that can be kind of helped along or fixed by doing staging um, because uh, an entire game, even if we're talking just about a card game, that's a lot of work for one, one date, if that makes sense, like to be doing all at one time, yeah. because we know, I think they've proven what multitasking is actually false. Like people can't actually multitask. Yeah. Well, nobody's so, good at it. They were all <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not doing it all at one time. So you might as well not wait till your last day to get all of your items. You, you know, you may as well get some things this week, some things next week, some things the week after so that, that you're constantly having time to actually spend and proof things and go over and be like, Oh my gosh, we actually changed um, and that's, this actually just happened to us in Como Ward. We actually changed the word envelope to box because of there's so much stuff that comes with each scenario. We're not putting the cards in envelopes anymore. So I'm going through every single card and looking for the word envelope and I'm changing it to box. And of course, you know, computer aided stuff makes that easier. But that's that's one of those you may not catch if when you give an artist a deadline that's I want my entire game done by June 24th. On June 23rd at midnight, you get, you know, links to, to all your graphics and you're in a hurry to send them to the printer. Now you've got your entire game to proof to meet your own deadline. Whereas, you know, if you if you start that process earlier 
of proofing and getting things and finalizing it, then that's going to make it easier for you and for the artist. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's kind of the, the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. And it makes it easier for the artist to take one bite at a time, right? And gosh, that's, that's something just really good to, to think about if you're hiring hiring anybody that needs to do a great deal of work is give them certain deadlines and certain ideas about when you want certain things because it helps everybody. And then making sure, and we'll get in, again, we'll get into communication in a second, but making sure you're communicating those deadlines as well. Now, anything else on the planning side? Definitely include, well, I guess that also goes into communication. I was going to say definitely include a set number of changes kind of in your contract stuff. Um, but that really goes, I guess, speaks to speaks to communication as well. All right. So before we get into communication, and it, it's coming, it's, it's going to be a big one. I just want to hit a couple more things first. Let's get into, all right, you have a plan, you have a vision, you have an idea about what you need. You, you've talked to your printer about the box size and tokens and all that stuff. You've got an idea about what all that stuff is. Now you're going to go out and actually find the artist that you want to hire. What does that look like? Is, is it okay to talk to, you know, five or 10 different artists and get quotes back? Like what, tell me the, the kind of proper procedure if I'm in that situation. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So go to your favorite game on your shelf, turn it over and find out who the artist is. You may have to go into the rule book, probably on the last page and find out, uh, look on board game geek, look at your games. You've been impressed with the art by and go look and see, uh, under the artist list who, who worked on those and then follow their board game geek profile and send them a geek mail. Um, that's a great way to, you know, interact with people. You may meet some of these people at conventions as well. I mean, I've, I've met, met up with a lot of artists and generally they've got a business card and they'll be happy to entertain your request for quotes, um, just via email. Usually, uh, there's also a group on Facebook that's art and design or, uh, art and graphic design. And you can just search for like board game, art, board game, art and design on, uh, on Facebook at the top there. And it'll pull up these groups. Uh, I've seen a lot of people get jobs through that. I think Pandasaurus actually uh, looked was looking for an artist uh, last week, you know, on there and Renegade the week before. So it, it's definitely uh, well attended by artists and by people needing artists. And then lastly, I'll say ArtStation, which it and that, I think that's kind of taken the place of DeviantArt. Um, because when we were first getting into this hobby market, you know, people were doing design like I was doing, like for casinos and stuff that, you know, you're not going to run into them. You're not going to have board game geek to go look and see, Hey, who did this? Um, it's only been in the last couple of years, like the last, you know, five, six, seven years that we've been listing things like the graphic designer on a game. So we didn't have access to that. And people were surfing DeviantArt and finding really cool art that they liked and then approaching them. And the problem with that turned out for a lot of people to be that they weren't finding professional artists. They were finding folks that did this nights and weekends and things like like I was doing. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But that's where you come into a lot of... Um, or a lot, of, a lot of problems <laughs> were were kind of happening with that is because it wasn't being looked at as a business or a professional atmosphere, really. And that's not to say there's no, not professional artists on DeviantArt, because I'm sure there are. But ArtStation um, will allow you to search for artists who are looking for work, and it will, and it's just ArtStation.com, um, and it will let you search by specialty and you can put in keywords so you can even put in board game um i found a lot of good mini artists for rambo the board game actually on there and uh we've had fantastic work out of them and some of these minis are really choice um but there's also graphic designers and illustrators as well 
Now that's going to allow you, like I said, to search. Now, one of the best things I can tell you to do is there's a little checky box. <laughs> it's not a radio button, I don't think. I think it is a checkbox for pro members. Now, these are members that have paid to be a member of ArtStation and come up first in searches. Now, if you actually uncheck that box, you get people that are starting out. You get people that may be more on par with what you're able to pay, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to make any assumptions. Maybe you have a whole lot of money to pay for art, but the quality of art doesn't necessarily equate to the cost of art. Mm. Um, so just a little helpful hint. <laughs> yeah. All right. So walk me through what, what my message to an artist needs to be, whether it's through email or something like that, like tell cause I've seen people uh, in the past that write these ridiculous things, asking for things. And it's like, have, where were you raised? Like, how do you, yeah, that's not how you talk to people. And so like, if I'm going to talk to an artist, how do I like start that conversation? Like what, what do I need to make sure is in my initial email or initial message? If I'm trying to get a quote or I'm trying to, you know, seek hiring of, of somebody. Okay. So I would start out with what you like about their work and why you think it fits what you're doing. So when you, when you find an artist, you're generally going to have chosen them because you like their style and you think their style will mesh with your game. So you don't need to tell them all about how you came up with your game and, you know, it, it doesn't need to be a bio about you. What you do need to do is tell them the scope of the project, the overarching scope, because remember, this is a first time contact. So you need to say, I'm working on a board game or I'm working on a card game. It has approximately this many kinds of cards that I need art for. And I think your style would go really well with this. Would you be interested in providing me a quote? And that's it. You don't need to give them that whole component list right now, you need to make sure they're interested and make sure they're available before you waste your own time, you know, because you, you've got more stuff to do. Obviously, publishing is, is busy work. So <laughs> yeah, now, is it good to go ahead and put some dates in there? So hey, hey, I need this by June 24th. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And do you want to say that, that, you know, that's my final date, but I'll be looking for first proofs on a smaller chunk of work on the state. So you'd basically tell them kind of the start date and the end date. Um, you know, the, the, be all, end all, everything has to be done by, by this date. Um, and then you wait for a reply, really, because that's you don't want to get too invested. And, uh, and you certainly want to have more than one artist to choose from, because that's that's one of those. We've all got kind of a all, all game designers kind of have a pie in the sky like, oh, I'd love for this person to work on my game. But you have to you have to be realistic that that person may not be available. Um, so definitely have more than one choice, of, you know, ready uh, ready to go, or at least send out more than one request for our RFP, you know, request for proposal is what, what we, <laughs> what we call it. in in my past life, um, in the business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, as far as timelines, tell me, give me just an idea. And this is going to depend on different artists. They work at different speeds, that kind of thing. But give me an idea as far as like when I should start reaching out to people. So let's say, you know, I've, I've got my, my game, it's coming up, it's going to be on Kickstarter here in, in a few months, or do I need to be six months out? Like when, when should I actually start approaching people? So for Kickstarters, I would say six months isn't a bad, bad idea because that way it's going to give you time to start promoting and start being able to make ads. If you have some graphic um, disposition yourself, then being able to make ads from, from some items that you get from artists is going to be helpful uh, to, you know, get your social media engine running and, you know, start getting placeholders uh, in your Kickstarter page. But three months is more 
realistic, I think, for a lot of a lot of folks because the you know your date could change and and different things could happen or you know hey a publisher may approach you and want to want to sign your game and hey that'd be great. So um, I wouldn't do too much too early um, because you always, especially in, in, as you know with things like playtesting, you may wind up changing the scope of your game yourself before before you're ready to actually publish it. So you don't you don't want to do it too early. I would say a month is too late. But three months is just about perfect. Six months is excellent planning. Okay, cool. All right, so let's move into the <laughs> the money side. This is one thing that really trips a lot of people up because you know a lot of people they're not they're not business owners necessarily. Maybe maybe doing a Kickstarter is their first time into the the the, the realm of entrepreneurship, and so they're not used to hiring people and paying people, and they don't understand how how much that costs. They don't understand how much people's time is worth and that kind of thing. So let's kind of talk about the money side of things. I'm not asking for like your specific quotes or your, your specific rates or anything like just let's talk in general. How much should someone plan to spend if they're doing, you know, a certain number of cards or certain or how much for a box or how much, like just give me some, some ideas about the data as far as the money for these things. Okay. So generally your boxes are going to be uh, coming with a die line and they should be professionally obviously uh, set up templated front and back. Um, so it's not necessarily going to depend on size. However, generally 250 to 300 for a box is what I've, I've seen. If the illustrations provided and the text is provided and the logo is already provided, if you're literally getting somebody to put the things where you want them to go, but they're not creating them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, going to be pretty, pretty standard. Um, if we're talking about like a fit, uh, like a tuck box for a normal deck of cards, you know, obviously it's going to be going to be less than that. Um, but that's one of the only times that size really factors into it. Now, if you're trying to get, if you've got the illustration and you've got the blurbs for the back of the box and your barcode and that sort of thing, but you need them to do everything else, you know, you may be talking about increased, increased price from that. Um, as far as rule books go, the pages is really what's going to dictate the cost of that. A single sheet of rules that doesn't even fold, you know, doesn't have to have a back, um, is going to be a lot less than, say, your 20-page rule book. Um, make sure you have space in your rules. If you've got 20 pages typed that have no graphics, you cannot have a 20-page rule book. It's just not going to work. Uh, because once you talk about the front cover, the inside front cover, those still count as pages and your back cover and your inside back cover and that sort of sort of thing. That's already deducting four pages from that. Yeah. So the cost on rule books is is iffy because some graphic designers are going to. What I call um, imposition your your rule book, and that's putting things where they think they should go. Mm based on their experience doing rule books. Now others, you may send your rules over and say, I want it exactly in this order. Now that should cost you less to put things exactly in this order than having your graphic designer put it in order. Um, so it's, it's all a matter of how much work you do on the front end. And especially with rule books, you wanna make sure it's the final, final, final version. You should only be sending a graphic designer changes to your rule book that is, oh, we actually meant, um, them instead of then right there and it you know spell checked it and pick it up because it really was a word and that kind of thing you shouldn't be pulling out entire sections once you've actually sent this to 
a graphic designer to to lay out because that the changes to a rule book are where costs really skyrocket. Yeah, for sure. And anytime you're making changes, I mean, you're, you you have to pay again. It's not something you can go to the artist and be like, hey, can you change this for free? Like, no, my time is valuable. And you wouldn't want your boss coming to you and say, hey, can you work that overtime for free? Can you yeah, do it out of goodness of your heart? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wouldn't you love that? <laughs> yeah. So that that's one of those. You, you definitely get what you pay for in rule book design. And I will say, like, so I've seen anywhere from 500 to $1,000 for an eight-page rule book. Um, and that's depends on the scope because obviously that's double you know that, that's a heck of an estimate um for both for both sides of that now generally like i know i've done i've done some four to eight page rule books for 250 dollars, but that's something that i worked on the rest of the project for so i didn't have to wait to download the logo and the picture of this character that goes over here and this kind of card because I'd already created those. So I actually had them on my desktop and it made it really easy um, on my desktop machine. So I, it made it really easy for me to go ahead and pull them in and do, do what I needed to do. But that that one of the ways you can save money with a rule book is doing a lot of the front end work yourself, which is this goes here. I need a graphic of this card with two arrows and the arrows need to come over and say header, header, explanation, explanation, um, because that's going to give your graphic artist exactly what they need to be able to create that for you. Gotcha. And now do I get like if I heard you or hired another artist to do the whole game as opposed to just doing one piece here, one piece there? Do you get some kind of like discount kind of thing? Like, you know, it's. Uh, if I was just going to get you to do the rule book, you might charge me $500, but I'm going to get you to do the rule book and the cards and the box. And so like all in the rule book might be, you know, well, in that case, the rule book is going to cost like 350 or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, that's what I do with my clients. And I know a lot of artists like to work that way because that's, I mean, that's guaranteed work for us as well. Yeah. So that there's definitely that comes back to that communication, um, and the negotiation aspect, because if it, it would do you good to get a piecemeal quote. Go ahead and get an a la carte quote where you see everything done out and you see that total. And then after you get up off the floor, you talk <laughs> with that artist and you see if you can get a package deal. Now, that kind of leads into the communication. And if you're ready to jump into that, I am. But is that? Uh, yeah, let's, let's do that. And then we can come back. I think we're going to bounce back and forth between money and communication. Because that's actually going to yeah, be my, sure. my next question is, like, what are the rules on negotiation? Like, what is, what's considered to be okay as opposed to what's considered to just be offensive? Like, you can't, like, you shouldn't go back to somebody and say, no, you know, that's ridiculous. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Like, you should never insult somebody after a quote. I think that's one thing that, that happens that's Absolutely. super <laughs> frustrating about any business is when someone says, this is how much my time is worth. And then they're told they're stupid or they're not worth that or whatever. That's, that's just, there's no place for that. And I know there's a lot of people that have sent uh, messages out to people and say, you know, I only have a few hundred dollars, but this would be really good for your portfolio. Like this would look really good on your on your your art station site. It's like, okay, that's that's absolute utter garbage. Like there's never a reason for you to come to somebody and say, yeah, I can't pay you, but I want you to do this like giant project for me. That's that's ridiculous. It'd be like your boss coming to you and saying, hey, we're not going to pay you anymore, but this job's going to look really good on your resume. So when you go try to get another job, it'll look better. Like that's the equivalent of what you're trying to say. I mean, these are people, this is their business. This is their job. And so like, if you're saying, no, I don't want to pay you, it, it's, it's just, there's no place for that in, in this industry. And so let's, let's kind of talk about the negotiation side of things and like, what's, what's okay. And then what's just like, not okay. All right. So I, I think with artists, it's really going to depend on the individual artist. And that's something nobody wants to hear. But so as far as guidelines, I mean, if, if somebody tells you that, yeah, they can do your box, but it's going to be a thousand dollars, 
and your budget for your box is $300, your very best bet is to tell them that that's outside of your budget and then leave it alone and walk away. Um, because there's, if the difference is too great, I think it's only going to frustrate both of you and possibly burn bridges for the future. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so some of the things you can do to negotiate with an artist are, like you said, try and build up a package um, and especially do stages of work like we talked about in our, you know, talking about planning. So if you need 25 kinds of cards and there needs to be 50 of each kind of card, then, you know, maybe you can get that iteration price down because you're doing so many different kinds of designs. And then if you're getting them to do the rules and the box and the tokens, and there's a lot of other, other pieces to this, the best thing to do, like I said, is to get that full quote where everything's itemized as if you bought just one of whatever it was, you know, you get your full itemized quote out and then you look at that and then you look at maybe taking 30% off and you ask them if we did all of this as a package and I pay you half of it up front. See, that's where you have to do that give and take. Hmm. Um, would that be acceptable? And then as they finish, say the cards, you'll do a payout. So you'd say if, if you're working with them for the next three months to do your game, maybe every, 15 days, they get paid out if if deliverables have been met by the dates that you set. Um, there's also the opportunity to do, say, a bonus at the end if everything made it before deadlines like you, like you were hoping for. So you can add a little bit of the money back in as you're growing more confident with the artist's ability to complete the work and you're liking what you see. Gotcha. So really just it's about incentivizing the work, right? One thing I was going to ask is if you if you come to a, a contract or whatever where you're going to – the artist is going to deliver things in stages, should you also pay in stages? So if you've got three stages, should you pay kind of three times? Is that typical? Is Absolutely. that normal? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. That's exactly – because that's going to be, you know, like like we talked about before the show and I think we've already mentioned, you know, the, oh, well, it took a lot longer than I thought and I wasn't hearing back from them and I'm not – you know, their communication wasn't great. And I'm worried that, you know, my stuff's going to come in on time. And that kind of leads people to um, worry their artists. <laughs> to... <laughs> See, you're Southern and you know, worry wart. They're being like worry wart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but that if you're incentivizing each step, that gives both of you the ability to kind of drive the process and make sure it all gets done on time. Um, that way you're control controlling the flow of work by controlling the money. Because this is one of those things like, so in, gosh, I've, I've worked so many crazy jobs. So, um, so like when you write on spec for a commercial magazine or sometimes even for uh, news periodicals, they have what they call a kill fee. So even if they don't publish something, if they asked, if you have a contract to write whatever it is, you'll get a 40% kill fee. And so that's kind of where I see the partial payments coming in to artist contracts. Because if you say worst, worst thing ever, you're not going to do this project at all. They've already gotten paid for the part they've done. Right. If you haven't basically put up earnest money, if you haven't done your down payment and you haven't been making your payments on time, they have no reason to complete your art. Um, and you have no expectation of them completing your art because, you know, you guys have already negotiated this and you're supposed to be paying, paying in installments. Um, but that way the artist time isn't completely lost because like you said with the, Oh, it'll look great in your portfolio and that sort of, you know, uh, sentiment, we see that a lot in art and it's because we're not creating a physical good, mm -hmm. even though our art appears on the physical good, 
creators, publishers have to actually pay a printer to get the physical good. So what they're 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 not making that connection, like you said, in the professional world that we're actually selling a commodity because we're not we're selling a service. And because they they're not looking at that as I bought this many reams of paper and this many you know decks of cards, they're not making the connection with, well, our resources have already been used to do that. If our resources are our time, our resources are our creativity, um, we've already spent that. And so we definitely need to be paid for it, whether your game happens or not. Yeah, for sure. Now, is it normal to do, like if you're going to do the stages and payments in stages, is it normal, like let's say I got three stages, would it be typical to do 33%, 33%, 33%, or would it also be okay to do like 20, 20, 60? So you kind of put the the big chunk of money on on the final, you know, everything's finished stage. Well, so I will say because I'm doing... Because I've I've had experience doing this and I've worked with some some uh, bigger publishers. I actually do fifty percent up front and fifty percent at the end. Because okay. what the kinds of jobs I wind up taking, I finish, you know, I finish a game in a month, and I've done the piecemeal payout stuff, and that's that's great, and I enjoy that. But when you're working a lot faster, sometimes you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, when I have done the piecemeal stuff, it'll be fifty percent up front, and then kind of. 20, 20, 20% of what's left, Mm -hmm. and then a larger payout at the end. Um, And that's going to protect your publishers, too. That's going to protect your creators, because if you send everything to your printer, and you've already paid your artist, or heaven forbid, they've, you know, gone on a month-long vacation to Ibiza, um, (laughs) and your printer comes back and says, oh, well, all of this is RGB, and we can't print it, Mm. or you don't have three millimeter bleed on your tokens, and we can't print it. Or your box isn't flattening correctly, dear God, ah, <laughs> that gives me chills, mm-hmm. um, and we can't print it. So you want to save your final, final payment until your printer has told you that your files are excellent, wonderful, we're going to print them, they're going to be the best thing you've ever seen. Because that's just going to keep it where you have control over getting, you know, getting, getting the work finished. Because... You know, talking about that the communication thing again, if you've talked with your printer, you know what your printer needs. You have, of course, conveyed this to your artist. If your artist accepted the job, it is their responsibility 100% to make sure that the files are exactly how the printer said they wanted the files. But they can only do that, of course, if you've told them exactly how their printer wants the files. Um, but yeah, no, no final payment should be made until you know the work is 100% final. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think this is also something people ran into hiring, you know, folks from DeviantArt or whatever who aren't necessarily board game artists or designers, graphic designers, is those people didn't know the file types. They didn't know the questions they needed to ask. And if you're a first-time publisher, you don't know either necessarily. Like, you're learning all this exactly. too, uh, this stuff too. And so a lot of people have run into those issues, and it's cost them a lot of money on the back end. And so I want to get into some of those questions. But real quick, I want to go back to what you, something you just said a minute ago. What, as far as checking in, as far as being a worry wart, like you don't want to like keep sending emails every other day, but like what is a, a good standard practice for like how often to check in? Well, I would say if you've set a deadline and, and I, I feel like I'm not the only one that ha- that, that's working on these tight deadlines. So I'll usually get the first payment for something uh, the week they want to see the first drafts. And as the artist, I will communicate with them and let them know, like, okay, by Wednesday, I should have you a first draft to look at. And that way we've got the rest of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for me to get you the final, if Friday's my deadline, right? So 
if you don't actually hear from them when they said you were going to, definitely go ahead and reach out. I would do generally once a week. Um, if you've got tighter deadlines, you know, I've some of the creators I've worked with, you know, we've talked every day. We've talked on the phone. We've talked, we've, we've emailed. Um, and you may not be in a position to do that with your artist or your artist may not be in a position to do that with you. But that's, again, where you need to be clear on the front end of when can they talk, when are they available, and when will they be working on your project. Um, so you should basically know when you can kind of expect to hear from them. Uh, and that, that works or that's doubly so for, like, say, working with artists in another country. Um, when we were doing Rambo, half my artists were in Spain. So that time, like I think 3 p.m. here is when I generally had good good communication um, back and forth where they could be online at the same time. I think uh, I, that may have been may have been a different country. I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> um, you just need to be upfront and kind of know when they expect you to contact them and when they expect to have things done. And that goes back to that communication. Um, never feel like you're being a worrywart because hopefully you've hired somebody that you can trust and that you're going to get really good art from and that you're going to be proud of the project that you two produced together. So there shouldn't be anything left on the table. You shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be anxious. You shouldn't wonder if your stuff's going to show up. Um, you definitely don't want to put yourself in that situation. Yeah. And now when I'm sending out one of those kind of check-in messages, what should it say? Because I assume it shouldn't say, where's my art with a whole bunch of exclamation points. Like what, what <laughs> what's like the good, you know, nomenclature to use when just kind of checking in with an artist? Okay. So I would ask, you know, whatever deliverable you're looking for specifically um, and not mention anything that you haven't asked for yet. So, you know, um, I thought, or maybe not I thought, because that sound starts out sounding accusatory, but just um, I'm looking forward to seeing the proofs of whatever scope of the project you're on right now. You know, this afternoon is, is everything working out all right? You know, do you need anything else from me? So that way you're opening yourself up to being available if they're like, oh, actually one of the files was missing and I meant to tell you yesterday, but I didn't. Because, you know, we all we all have other stuff going on. Um, so you're, you're kind of giving them an out to admit that they either haven't started it or maybe they're just not, it's just not completed yet, but you're giving them kind of a non-accusatory way to let you know what's going on. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So going, just staying on the communication thing, you mentioned like CMYK and making sure your file formats in that kind of, uh, what's, what's that called? Color palette. If it needs to be for the yeah. printer, what are some <laughs> of the other things that people forget or they just don't know? Cause it's their first time that they really need to communicate with an artist as far as maybe the printer is concerned or, or that kind of thing. What are some of those things? All right. Well, first of all, your printer should be able to give you a list. Now that the hobby game is hobby game market has gotten as big as big as it is, the uh, your printer should be able to give you a list of file types and file formats that they accept. Generally, your best printers are only going to accept one kind. They're going to tell you we want exactly a PDF, two thousand eight, um, you know, compression type five to turn everything to curves and blah, blah, a bunch of stuff that you want to understand that I barely understand. And I've been doing this forever <laughs> because everybody has their own little quirks. So generally what I do is I go to pandagm.com and I download their guide for, um, file preparation. It's free. Panda's fantastic. And if you ever run into a Metacon, they actually have a lovely glossy printed out brochure. Um, and that's going to tell you kind of the best practices for the industry and so if for some reason your printer can't supply you with what you need to um, 
give to your artist, go download that guide from Panda and give that to them and just let them, you know, just let them know, yes, I know this is from Panda. I'm not printing with Panda, but they are, you know, kind of the, the leading, <laughs> leading authority on file types for board game printing. Now you will find some German printers, um, and a few of the Chinese printers aren't going to, or are going to want something slightly different, but it won't be so different that you can't just simply resave the PDF. Um, but all your all your printers are going to want PDF files. They're going to want everything in CMYK, and just a good a kind of a good way to envision that because I know that we're, we're asking publishers to be experts in everything. And oh my gosh, who has time to learn all of that? Yeah. But the difference, just really quick, between RGB and CMYK is RGB is actually red, green, blue. And that is the light spectrum. So it's what's coming out of your monitor. And you can't print in light. You have to print in ink, which is when people say four color. That's referring to cyan, yellow, magenta, and black, which is what CMYK stands for. So that's kind of, I guess, four four color is paper and three color is visual. Hmm. Is that <laughs> That's a quick. <laughs> gotcha. That little, makes sense. No one's ever explained tip. it to me. They, mm-hmm. I just thought it was the, uh, just different. I didn't know why they did it differently. I just knew it was different. So that's actually good to know. Yeah, and it's it's one of those when you're looking at proofs as well, when they're in RGB, they're going to be brighter. You know, the neon colors are very hard to reproduce in CMYK. So you need to be careful, too, when you're looking at your proofs and make sure that they're already in CMYK. Uh, we've come a long way with printing technology, but it, it, it used to be, and some older printers will still print RGB in just muddy browns. Mm-hmm. It'll all be terrible when it comes out that way. But hopefully your printer will say, oh, hey, you know, three of these file types were actually RGB and they'll give you the chance to change those before they send you your proofs um, from the printer. Now, is this also something to think about? Like like you said, that RGB is on my monitor. So if I look at a card on my computer screen, it's not going to look the same necessarily when it gets printed out, correct? Exactly. So you need to make sure you print all your proofs. Um, if you don't have a color printer available at home, go ahead and send them to one of the uh, quick print places like Kinko's or you know, the UPS store or something like that uh, to, to go ahead and see a color color proof. Now, to save yourself time and money, go ahead and just print the first page of some of your proofs. Just make sure all the colors are the same. Um, you don't need to print, you know, all 50 cards of every 25 or all, all 25 of the designs for our made-up game we've been talking about here <laughs> that's due June 24th. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just print at least one of each kind. And you can even have them gang them on the page. That's when they're going to put more than one on a on a single page. You can break PDFs apart with Acrobat or even just ask your artist to send you PDFs in the same print um, format that you need for your printer because the compression styles will actually change colors sometimes. They'll be built-in conversions or flatteners. And um, if something prints on your proof it will print on your card. Okay. But we, I, I know if, if, uh, if you're used to looking at PDFs on your computer, you know, sometimes you'll see what looks like shadows of boxes, just squares drawn all over things. Those may not print. So don't automatically jump your artist for those. Go ahead and print out a copy. Even black and white would be fine just to see if you can see those boxes. But if you can see them in the paper print, they're going to print at the factory as well so you need to make sure you get that compression stuff taken care of yeah now what is flattening exactly so when we build a card proof like when we build a card frame and we've got icons and we've got text and we've got the illustration in the background there like let's just think about a magic card that's got let's say 20 elements on it all of those need to be flattened into one quote-unquote single object to be printed 
Now, if the compression settings are off a little bit, that's where you'll see things like um, a, a drop shadow not lining up with the text it's supposed to be around or um, things looking like they're off registration or white boxes showing up underneath, like say an icon. So an icon would be round or it would be fire shaped or land shaped or tree shaped, you know, so going back to the magic cards um, and you'll see the white box around clipped to the edges of, of that circle. So a box as big as the circle is, except it's square yeah. and that's showing up. Um, those are things you need to look out for when something's incorrectly flattened uh, when you're checking your proofs. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, real quick, I want to go more, obviously more into more communication stuff, but I got one thing in my notes I, I wrote down about the money. I just want to ask you real quick, just can you give me an idea about, it's, it's kind of, this is a, kind of a hard question to ask, but just kind of bear with me and kind of help me figure out what the best way to kind of put this. So if someone is thinking, okay, I've got a board game. I need to figure out how much the art is going to cost just to like start figuring out a budget. Can you give me any numbers as far as like just in general, how much a, a normal, let's say pandemic, a pandemic sized game with those components, that kind of a board, that car, those cards, that kind of thing. Like, what would be a good ballpark figure for me to start thinking about as far as budget? Is it a like two to four thousand dollar thing, a five to eight thousand dollar thing? Like, what? Just give me some kind of ballpark general number so people can have an idea going into this kind of thing. Well, now remember, I also don't do painting, so I don't, I don't do the illustration. So, assuming that you already had your board created by somebody else, um, and then you're using snippets of that board to be the cities on the pandemic cards. I mean, you're looking at, yeah, 15 to $2,000 to do the graphic design only on that game. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I forgot about the rule book. I don't remember how long their rule book is. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it 20, we'll call it 20 pages. It's probably like 20, 15, 20, 20 pages. 20. Yeah. yeah. So we're looking, we're looking at about $2,400 to, for the graphic design for that game. But then if you think about the illustration, you know, basically what I mentioned, you've got illustrations for each character and then you've got that board. And they're actually using snippets of the board on all the cards, which is a really smart idea. And I recommend that to to publishers um, because you're getting utility out of that art, like hardcore. <laughs> yeah, anytime you can um, re like reuse something, you know, reuse something yeah. multiple times, it's going to save you money, right? Absolutely. And with reason, because, I mean, it's centered on a different point because obviously they're pinpointing the individual cities. It doesn't feel like... Mm -hmm. They're reusing it because they need that there. And that's always something excellent. If you can work that into your designs, that's going to save you money as well so that you don't have to get separate pieces of art. You know, one of, one of everybody's favorite games to kind of pick on, and I've been guilty of this, is Terraforming Mars. But if you think about the sheer number of those cards in Terraforming Mars, that like getting a unique illustration for those, you could have bought a Tesla by then. Come on. <laughs> right. That's a good point. And so, all right, we're talking, you know, just for graphic design, you're talking $2,500, $3,000 just for a game like Pandemic Sized. And then you're talking about the art on top of that. So, I mean, you're looking five grand at least, six grand, seven grand. I mean, it, it could easily start running into five figures if you're not careful with the amount of art and unique images and unique different things that you're trying to do. And so, I just that's one thing I just want people to, to realize that going in. Like, if you have this idea that art is super cheap and you can get the whole thing done for $500 and then you contact an artist and they come back and they're like, yeah, it's going to be about five grand. Like, you will lose your, your mind and not understand. And so I just want people to kind of grasp that art is expensive. But now the good news is it's a sunk cost. Like it's that one-time thing. You're not going to have to pay your artist for the second print run. You know, you don't have to pay them again. Like if you if you sell out all your copies, you want to go back and, and print another uh, round, you know, 2,000 games, you don't have to pay them again. And so it's like upfront cost on the 
of a board game. But then it is it is pretty massive, and so I think that's what a lot of Kickstarter money goes to. It's it's the art, and that's why so often Kickstarters need twenty grand. It's not because the game costs that much; it's because they got a lot of art and a lot of things they're trying to do with it. Absolutely, and I mean I think that is the game, though. So I think it is that the game. Well, it's fair. Them. I'm just saying it's not like yeah. the actual like physical. <laughs> the printer cost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not the printing cost. It's it. Yeah, that's fair. It is the game cost, but it's not the printing cost. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's go back into communication. Anything else that people just need to be aware of in the communication uh, between them and an artist? Oh, absolutely. So once once we've done that original email, let's say, they come back and they say, yeah, this sounds great. Um, by the way, it also helps if you've got your game up anywhere and you have a link to it that you can send that's, you know, this is the scope of the game or whatever, so they can check it out. Because um, you may have an artist that was on the fence and then it turns out they really love your theme and they are excited to work with that theme, you know, that may work, work to your favor or, you know, it may not, it may be, it may be pirates or zombies or something they just did and they're sick of looking at them. You don't want somebody that's burned out working on your game that, that doesn't care about that theme. You know what I mean? Like it's not paramount that they love your game, but if they're actively, you know, over (laughs) whatever it is, you're not going to get the caliber of work that you're hoping to get out of them. Um, so that's just kind of an aside. Just if you've got a link to something that'll give them more information about your game, just don't overwhelm them in that first email. Don't attach your rules and your link and your Facebook page. Just give them the bare minimum you need to know. Well, let's say they respond back and they're like, yeah, they'd love to know more about the game. So at this point, you remember that you're interviewing them. You're not just trying to get them to say yes to you. Right. So you need to send them the, the scope of your game and say that you would like a quote. Um, you need to follow that up in the same email with when, like, what ha- what's their work situation like? Are they doing this full time or are they doing this nights and weekends? Because that's going to be really important. You know, if they've got inventory at work or a big sales meeting coming up, they may not have that extra time to do that. So you just need to be aware on the front end of how much time they have available to work on your game. And I mean, and that's, and that's not even considering things like being parents or, you know, siblings and or having somebody gets sick or you know, yeah. this, the lifetime life stuff that happens to everybody. However, if you've got a full-time artist working on your job, working on your project, you should expect to get that work done faster and them already have stuff in place to deal with a sick kid that had to stay home from school and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so you definitely want to know. And that's also going to let you know too, when you can expect to get emails back from them and you don't have to phrase it like that. You don't have to say like, when will you be sending me proofs? Like what time? Um, but if, if they're only working at night and say you're doing something that's really iterative and you need to give feedback and be like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'd like it if maybe all of this was green and you want to have actual dialogue. You know, if they're only available to talk at 11 p.m. and that doesn't work for you, then, you know, you're, you're not going to get that same kind of collaborative process out of it. Um, so you also you need to be clear about when they can work on your job. Now, you also want to know how do they want to get paid? Um, you can set up the terms or you can have your artists set up the terms. More established artists are already going to have ways that they like to get paid. Um, you can insist on doing the stages because that, like I said, is going to give, not only is it going to give you time to get the game ready, the game ready for the artist, but it's like, it's going to let you do that proofing and get things back in stages and also give you time to, you know, 
kind of absorb the the payments as well. You know, it, it's, it's always going to be easier for everybody to do 250 bucks five times over two months than it is to say, okay, you know, here's, here's all this in one lump sum. And now your bank account is sad. Um, <laughs> so you also want to know how will they handle extra work or canceled work? You need to be upfront about this. You know, you may decide, oh, it turns out we don't need these other two male characters after talking with our backers, you know, they want female characters. So even though I provided you the art direction for these two, I don't want them, you know, I want to do these two ladies instead. Um, and that sort of thing. So changes, extra work and canceled work. You want to just have something in place. Maybe it's that if they've already started on it, um, you're paying them a percentage of what that, that art was going to cost you. And you ask them to stop immediately, um, on what you're not going to wind up using. Um, but that's going to come back to you that just good communication between you and the artist. And then as far as extra work, you need to have something outlined in your contract where like if say your 25 kinds of cards turns into 26, you know, can you add that 26th card kind of card for, you know, that same, that same price, that same discounted package price that you've, you know, agreed to just in case that comes up. Now, as far as contracts go, is it my job to give them a contract or do they send me one? Like who, who comes up with the contract, the actual like piece, you know, the actual document to be signed? It depends whose interest you want it to be in. If you want it to be in the artist's best interest, then sure, sign what they send you. But if you want it to be in your best interest, you need to send it to them. Um, so what you can look for in a contract is you can find some stuff online. The very, very, very best thing to do is have your lawyer come up with a contract. Now, we're, we're little, you know, none of us have lawyers. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is make sure you have everything in writing. Make sure that when you're communicating with your artists about money, about payment plan, like payment time, about stages, about when stuff's due, make sure that that's all in writing so that you've got evidence essentially so that you've got something to come back with and fall back on. Um, you can come up with a simple document that states your company's name, that states their name and their address and what you want, when you want it, when you're going to pay for it, how much you're going to pay for it, what you're going to do about extra work, what you're going to do about canceled work, and then what's going to happen if the artist doesn't follow through. Um, so when you're, when you're setting up your contract with your artist, you want to make sure that you have caveats in there for if they can't deliver the rest of the project so that you're only liable for what they've already been paid and you don't have to make any future payouts, including your, um, your last payout, which, you know, you and I discussed making that kind of almost like a bonus for getting everything in on time and being a little bit more than some of the other payouts. Um, you would keep all of that. Uh, so you want to make sure those expectations are set though. So we've talked about like, when can they work? You need to know if you're going to be getting emails in the middle of the night or on weekends, if that's the best time to deal with them. And that may change, you know, the artist that you want to work with, because if you can't work on weekends, that's when you're busy, you're out with your family and whatever, you know, you, you don't want an artist that you can only talk to on the weekends um, and actually get face-to-face -face kind of feedback. Well, you know, voice-to-voice -voice kind of feedback or email or, or however you choose to, to correspond. Um, you want to make sure you're very clear about how they want to get paid and you can, you know, determine the, that pay schedule as far as like every 10 days, every time they send you something um, that you accept and is, is completed. Don't pay for work that's not 100% done except for your kind of deposit. Your terms, payment terms definitely need to be in there 50% up front or 25% up front. And, you know, the rest on completion of the individual parts, you know, the stages we've talked about of your of your work. So you'd pay them for the cards when the cards are done. 
you're paying for the box when the box is done and, and that sort of thing. So that you will have to kind of piecemeal that out. And you need to have all of that in writing, you know, in the contract you come up with. And that, again, this isn't going to be a legal agreement between you and the artist unless you're having um, somebody from the legal profession actually draw this up. This is going to be your good faith document uh, between you and that artist so that you are clarifying expectations and you both know exactly what to expect. Now, the biggest thing I think that is kind of scary for people new coming into this or new at hiring artists is let's say you hire an artist to do a really great painterly style that you fell in love with um, from seeing some of their other work and you get your first proof back from them and you hate it. It is not at all what you were expecting. It's not what you want. You know, you, you, again, don't worry about feelings here because you need to look at this as a professional business. You need to have them stop work immediately and address this with them. Don't have them start on four other pieces or hold your tongue long enough that they have started on four other pieces because if they're creating work for you, you owe them for that work. It's like going into a bakery and then making you a cake. If they also made you, you know, a bunch of cupcakes that went with it that you ordered, you owe the money for all of that, regardless of if the party's canceled or not. Right. So it's kind of that same same thing. You know, their artists aren't working with, you know, sugar and flour, but we're working with time and creativity. And it's the same thing. Yeah. Now, what would you say is the best way to kind of broach that conversation? Because you don't want to send them a message that says, hey, this sucks. Uh, you're terrible. Right. You obviously want to like, do this the right way. And so like. Talk to me as an artist, like if, if, if you had drawn something or you had designed something, you had done something for someone that they hated, how would you want them to express that to you? Like, what, How would you want them to say that? Um, definitely be honest, be blunt. Don't say, well, it's kind of this or it's kind of that. And here's why is because the artist is going to hear that and they're going to think that you were both on the same page and that maybe you just want somebody's hair lengthened or the color changed. They may think that there's tweaks they can do to what they've sent you that you didn't like to make you like it now. So if, if it, if the entire thing is just hot garbage, as far as what you were expecting, um, you need to be upfront with that. And the best way to broach that is send them their work that you like, which is also something you should have done on the front end saying, I want it to look like this. Um, because we're, I'm, I'm talking to you about this right now as if it's the artist's fault and not yours, mm-hmm. not the person requesting the, the work. If, if you didn't give them that art direction and, you know, you, you said you've just done a, done a show on that and, you know, people know how important art direction is. Um, if they've had the art direction for this piece and it is not what you're expecting, then you definitely need to communicate that with them because you're trying to find out if they can complete what you want or if you need to, you know, basically fire them as, as the artist and, and find somebody else that can do what you want. So don't hedge your bets. Don't soften what you're saying. But then again, you're not you're also not wanting to come across as, you know, a big foot stomping, table pounding, you know, ogre either. Um, so if you set your expectations correctly, you should be getting back what you want. In the event that you're not getting what you want back from that artist, you need to tell them how it's not what you want. And so this is when you go back to the art direction you sent them and you and you say, you know, I, I specifically want this kind of brushwork, this kind of style, this kind of lighting, these colors, and I'm not seeing that reflected, you know, in what you sent me. Um, and the way we've organized our, our work, you know, I'd like to see another first draft is that I, I do not want to accept this as the first draft for this because it's so far from what I asked you for. Yeah. Now 
from the artist standpoint, how much direction do you want on the front end? I mean, is it, is it, and it might be just kind of artist by artist. Like some people need a ton and some people can kind of work a little more. But like what would be your advice as far as like how much art direction to give? Over explain, but don't contradict yourself. Okay. So you don't want to send three images that are three vastly different styles and say, I want all three of these put together. <laughs> yeah. But especially if you can compare it to that artist's own work and say things like this palette, this color palette. So like the tones of the colors and this, the way the lighting comes in on this one, you know, like, so half the picture's light and half of it's dark. Like there's a silhouette, tell them exactly what you like about it, exactly what you want to see replicated in your art. And then you can find some outside examples as well, because there's not all, you're not always going to have something that's exactly suitable for your game that this artist has done. But if, if there's any chance that you can find something that is something they've done, that's going to allow them to have an even better frame of reference for what you're looking for. So over explain, don't be worried that your artist is going to think that you think they're a moron. Just if you, the more you put into it on the front end, the better results you're going to get on the back end. And that's, that's the same with every business everywhere, no matter what. So the more clear you can be about your direction, um, the easier it is for the artist to actually complete that. And it gives them the opportunity to say, Oh, I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not good with hands for instance, or something. And and there's (laughs) hands seem to be a hang up for for a lot of artists, me included. That's why I do digital art now. Cause Mm -hmm. man, (laughs) um, you know, so it may be that there's some part of this that they tell you upfront they can't do. Now that gives you the opportunity again to talk with them and see if you guys can brainstorm an idea that's not a hand. Um, maybe you were doing some sort of item where they needed to be holding a pen and the pen was actually the item. You know, that gives you the opportunity to brainstorm with them and even, again, negotiate because maybe it's going to be a simpler drawing. Maybe it's going to be a pen lying on a piece of paper on a desk and that's going to take them a lot less time than doing a human hand holding a pen and writing. So maybe that's going to give you the opportunity to, you know, lessen the cost on that. Now, that's not saying you want to go in and like you were saying, you don't want to insult them by like, say, oh, how about 25% of what I was going to pay you for it, you know, but you can just broach that with them and ask them, like, do you think there could be a discount, you know, on this piece and we could make it a simpler drawing? And that'd be simply all you need to say and obviously have that in writing. And they're going to come back and say, well, it's going to take me the same amount of time. So no, or yeah, I don't see any problem with that. You know, what about blah amount of money? Yeah, gotcha. Now, would it be a good idea, especially if you've, you're kind of on the very early stages, like you're not really sure that the artist is going to come through the way you want them to just yet, you're still trying to figure that out. Would it be good to have the stages where they send you the sketches first before they do the color, right? And then they do the color and then they and then the final version of something. So kind of like you see the full process of the, of the, the art coming out. Would that be a good idea? Or, or Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I've also seen, I've had artists that I wasn't completely sure about. I had three I loved and I asked them for sketches of one of the characters, like a very quick sketch. I made it very clear to them that I didn't want them to spend four hours on this. Mm -hmm. I wanted a 15, 15 to 30 minute, you know, rough sketch or even basically their own art direction version. So when, when I say art direction, that's generally implies that there's a document that has been put together that's got side-by-side pictures and some explanation. So you can also ask for like what their vision of what you're asking them for is and, and basically get a scope from them. 
if, if that makes sense. So you're asking them to do a little work on the front end. There may be a cost involved with that. There should be a cost involved with that. But if we're talking about, you know, you, you were talking about five to $7,000 games once you add illustration in there, you know, if, if you're spending 50 bucks to get a sketch, that's going to save you so much money if it turns out that that artist and you aren't on the same page with right. what what you can what you can get. So there's always that possibility too, because the, I honestly think it's very rare that you're going to find a good artist that's a good fit for your job, a good fit for your project, that and, and then find three of those that all have the same availability and mm-hmm. ease of communication. Um, and you also have to think about language barriers because there's, like I said, using some of these Italian artists and some of the Spanish artists, um, I had a, I have a little dabble <laughs> of, of both of those languages. And so it made communication slightly easier, but there were times I, I got proofs back that were just completely 180 from what I asked for. And it was because of a mistranslation. Not that I, I didn't try to write in Spanish and Italian for these, uh, for these guys, but they when they basically like google translated it translated the exact opposite Mm. of the word i was trying to do so you know you have you have to be careful um kind of with stuff like that too and take that into consideration i actually have um friends that speak both languages that i would have when it was a really touchy thing or it was something like minute details i would actually have a friend translate what i'm what i meant because, you know, idiomatic expressions and things do not translate pretty much ever right. into any other language. Um, so I would explain to my friend what I wanted. And then I had my little paragraph written. And then he would translate that to Italian or Spanish. And then I would send it to send it to my artists. And I would tell them that that's what I was doing. So that they knew that, you know, please don't respond in your native <laughs> language to me. Because yeah. I'm not necessarily going to understand it. Um, you know, and I brought my friend lunch <laughs> for doing that. And I would have paid, you know, paid him too. Because that's, again, one of those things where if your friends won't pay you, who will? Yeah, so, right. you know, when somebody provides a service, you need to pay them for it. But, um that's another thing kind of to look out for. And with art station and stuff, you can't really tell necessarily where people are from a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, a lot of things is kind of like, what is it? Fiverr people are using for a while where everybody says they're from like California. Right. They're from the Philippines. (laughs) Yeah. And nobody's actually there. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, any other thoughts on communication? I mean, I really think it's, it's paramount. So the one thing I want to see publishers do is not get taken advantage of and not feel like they're getting taken advantage of because maybe they didn't provide all of the expectations on the front end. So I'm going to tell you to clarify your expectations. You need to know exactly when your deadlines are and that your artists, no matter what kind of artists they are, they understand that. And that, you know, if you set up stages, you've got deadlines for each stage. And like you were talking about getting proofs and sketches um, like if somebody's doing your Kickstarter video for you, you want a storyboard first. You want to know what their vision of this video is, and ideally, you would have sent them a storyboard. You know, put it put it in, um, you know, the Microsoft slideshow stuff, and, and and get individual screens and tell them like how many seconds you think this this should be. You know, and then get get feedback back and forth from them. So no matter what kind of artist it is, no matter who's providing a service for you for your game. You need to make sure they know what you want, because if they don't know exactly what you want, they can't get it to you. And that's just it's one of those things that seems really simple. But just because somebody's done, say, the best Kickstarter videos you've ever seen, that doesn't make it okay or acceptable or have any expectation of coming out with a fantastic outcome of you going, 
here's my game. Here's the rule book. Make me a cool Kickstarter video. That's simply not enough information. And there's guaranteed to be something you hate about the video you get back. You may love 98% of it, but there's going to be some detail in there that you're like, oh, that's exactly what we don't want to say to our backers about, you know, the cool part of our game or whatever. Um, so make sure you're clarifying those expectations with every service provider you get, artists, video, you know, anything. Deadlines, payment terms, make sure you both are on the same page and you're both comfortable with them. Um, you know, I've had artists tell me, well, I'm not comfortable with you using my art on your Kickstarter without um, having the final payment. Because since the game was being produced no matter what, and this was, you know, I was also working for, for a client. It wasn't my game. Um, but they didn't, they wanted to have payment completed for a specific card, even though they were going to do 40 more cards for us, you know, and that sort of thing. And that was like, well, he said that it made perfect sense to me. So we went ahead and did the final payout for that one card. We didn't do the final payout for all 41 cards, just that one. Um, and, and he's not wrong to say that because there's, you know, especially in this world of crowdfunding, not every game is going to make it. And so there's that expectation on, on their end too of, oh my gosh, am I going to get paid? So the more professional you go into something, I think the more leeway the artists are going to give you as well. And the more leeway you should give them if they're acting professionally towards you as well, because that's going to ease a lot of those concerns and a lot of those anxieties. And then the very final thing is just to follow through. If, if you told them you needed something by Friday, it's now Saturday at lunchtime and you haven't gotten it, you absolutely should call them or email them or whatever your best way of getting a hold of them is and say, look, you know, we had a deadline for Friday. You haven't met that deadline. Um, I need to get you know, this art from you and make sure everything's on track for the rest of my project. Um, you're very much within your rights to do that and you should. But then same thing, if they've delivered you, let's say your box layout and you have them do a 3D mock-up for you to put that on your Kickstarter and in your dealings with them, you said that you were going to pay them on the 15th for that and today's the 17th. Like you, you need to follow through. You need to have paid them on the 15th. Um, so it's definitely a two-way street that way. But if if your expectations are clear and the channels of communication are open, there's no reason it needs to be anxiety-making and, and worrisome. And a lot, I haven't met any artist out there working on board games that's going to be close to somebody coming to them and saying, look, I haven't hired an artist before. I think your art is fantastic. And I would like to know if you you know could provide me a quote for my game. But then the minimum you would have to have for that, even 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 if you're nervous about talking to an artist, is have your scope. Know exactly how many cards and tokens and box and how many different things you need. Because of course now with Kickstarter, you might have three different boxes. Right. <laughs> you know there may be different versions of the game, but that's something that they can help you with. And then my final advice is don't overbuy for your Kickstarter. It, buy the minimum amount of art you can get away with. I would go ahead and hire a graphic artist, especially like, go ahead and have them do the graphics for the Kickstarter page itself. That shouldn't cost nearly as much as doing a rule book or, any, or anything else, because they're going to be taking the art that you have created, showing it to the best of its ability and making you those graphics for the Kickstarter page to get that professional look. And that's also going to open up that dialogue with them to hopefully be able to use them for the rest of your game. And now you've already exchanged money. And once people have exchanged money, you know, the relationship just gets better from there because they know you're real, you know, they're real and, and, you know, you can keep going, but don't, 
let anybody talk you into, you know, buying every single illustration for your game and then doing all of the graphic design. That is such a large outlay of money. And, you know, there's, there's no reason to have all of that completely done before your Kickstarter. I mean, I'm not talking to the cool mini or not companies. I'm talking to, you know, the guys that have had one successful Kickstarter and are doing their second one or haven't had a, haven't had a Kickstarter yet and are doing it, you know, don't, don't get taken advantage of, especially when there's a lot of things that can change. Because one of the, I honestly think one of the best things about crowdfunding is crowdsourcing ideas for the game. You know, it may be your final day of your Kickstarter. You guys are having your celebratory party and somebody says, man, wouldn't it be cool if this mechanic was called this and you did it in this phase? And then all of your backers agree with that and you agree with that and you think that's the best thing ever and you're starting to playtest it. Well, if you've got a finished game... Now you have stuff you have to change, and you have to pay for stuff twice. Right. Yeah, great points. Adrian, wow, really appreciate your time. This has just been a lot of enlightening things, both for me and I know for a lot of people listening to this. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about how to save money on prototypes and different ways to uh, prototype your game on the cheap. But, again, Adrian, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the show, and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?